Well, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We're starting a, a new series talking about how we engage with the God we just sang about. And specifically, in the great exchange that Jesus and God offers to us, how do we move from seasonal faith to reasonable faith? How do we have a deep, abiding confidence in God? I think one of the things that's interesting is trying to decide what kind of faith we have. I mean, what is seasonal faith? Well, seasonal faith is when your confidence in God is tied directly to your circumstances. And so in one sense, we've all had seasons of seasonal faith. It's not operating there for most of the time. Here's what it feels like. Things are going well. God's answering prayers. Marriage is going well. Company's going well. Relationships within the company are going well. And you're thinking, man, God is good. Whoa, man, you're feeling great. God is great. The world is great. God feels close. It's summertime in my face. And then you move from summertime to fall. And God's not answering as quickly as he used to. And now God's not doing as much as he used to. You're sort of feeling a little slower. You're feeling like God's not quite as close You're feeling a a distance between God and you because the leaves are falling off things they shouldn't be falling off of. There's a cold breeze blowing through your life that you don't want and you've prayed against. And then winter comes. And your faith is just falling so low and so flat. You feel like you pray these prayers and boom, 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 boom off the ceiling. And God seems so far away. You're like, I'm in a winter of my life. It's a winter of depression. It's a winter of disconnection from God. You feel like God is not in my winter. He's wintering in Florida somewhere, but he's not here with me. And my confidence in God, my confidence in his ability is just so low because of the winter I'm going through. And then you come into a season of spring. And you start to see signs of new life and new birth. And you begin to say, well, maybe, maybe God's still here. Maybe he still cares for me. Maybe he's still involved. As you track your life and you track your confidence in God, it seems to go up when circumstances are good and down when circumstances are down. That's what's called seasonal faith. And God wants us to be able to anchor into him regardless of the season. In Hebrews chapter 11, known as the, the hall of faith, teaches us how people have done that historically and how we can as well. One of the reasons we have seasonal faith is because we have an assumption, at least I do, that I'm able to accurately interpret the seasons of life. And I can accurately determine during the winter that God has left the building. I can determine during the fall things shouldn't go this way. Yet if anything... Your life as a Christian has shown me, and I think has shown most of us, is that when we look back on seasons of our life, the time that we said, oh, God felt most distant, God felt most disconnected, we look back and say, that's when I grew the most. God used that time to deepen my faith because the circumstances weren't there. I had to put my faith in God when he was there. And sometimes because of trial and error, you went through a difficult time, you tried all the formulas. You tried to pray it away, you tried to cast it away, you tried to meditate it away, you tried to read the Bible away, and none of the formulas worked. And you were forced to move from faith in formulas to faith in God himself. And all through our life, you're going to come to seasons of your life where temptations 
and the pleasures of life are going to ask you to make an exchange. I want you to exchange God's way. It doesn't work here. It's not relevant anymore. That's old, archaic. That's old-fashioned. Exchange God's way for your way. And in those moments, we're all going to have a temptation to say, am I going to only trust God during certain seasons? Or am I going to, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of challenge, choose to put my confidence in God? Not in a seasonal way, but in a reasonable way. That's the main premise here in the the book of Hebrews, is that God wants to move us from seasonal faith to reasonable faith. We're going to look at three aspects of reasonable faith this morning in Hebrews 11. We'll look at evidence for reasonable faith, examples of reasonable faith, and ultimately what is the essence of reasonable faith. And my hope, as I've been preparing this for the last few months, my hope is that you will have a deep, emotional confidence in God, regardless of your circumstances. That you will be able to anchor yourself in God and His promises, just like our forefathers did. He begins in Hebrews chapter 11 with evidence of reasonable faith. He says, now let's, let's talk about what faith is. Now, and he uses the word now because chapter 11 is connected to chapter 10. And I'll show you how in a moment. What is faith? Is it magical thinking? I hope things are going to work out. Is it wishful thinking? He says, faith is a substance. Faith is not the absence of evidence. It's substantive. It's the substance that things hoped for will come about. It's also evidence. It's not the lack of evidence. It is evidence of things not yet seen. It's a future mindset of things to come. For by it, faith, the elders, those who've gone before us, obtained a good testimony that they were pleasing to God. For by faith... This phrase will show up over and over in the verse, verses for the next few weeks. By faith, we understand that the worlds around us, the planets, the, the moon, the stars, were framed by the very word of God. So that the things which are seen, the trees and the clouds and the animals, were not made of things that are visible. Now, what does that mean? We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice he says faith is substance. Faith is evidence. Faith is reasonable. Now, who's he talking to? Well, we go back to chapter 10. Why did he start with the word now here? Well, he's talking to real Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, who are following Jesus in a time of severe persecution under the Roman Empire. Things are bad. Things are torturous. Things are difficult. And he's going to try and encourage people during the most difficult season in history, one of the most difficult seasons in life, to try and keep their faith in Jesus. Here's what he says, chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, after you came to know Jesus, illuminated to the truth about who God was through Jesus, you, after you came to Christ, things were great, circumstances were great. No. You endured. What did you endure? A great struggle. That sounds like winter. Oh, and with sufferings. What? Partly while you were made a spectacle, you were mocked with reproach. What happened to you? With tribulations, what happened to you? And partly it was during that difficult wintery time that you went through where things were bad and the Romans were attacking you and the, the emperor demanded you to bow down to them. 
that you became companions with those who were mistreated. You drew near to other people who were hurting and other people who had been robbed and other people whose wives and daughters had been taken away. For you had compassion on me. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews, but most people think it's Paul. So I'm going to refer to it as Paul, but we're not sure. You had compassion on me in my chains. Even the guy who wrote the letter, the person who led you to Jesus, is in chains. Wouldn't you like to be a Christian too? Except Jesus. You might get reproach and tribulation and and rebukes and suffering and struggles. Why in the world would somebody become a Christian? Anytime, but especially during this time in history. And he says, and when I noticed that you were during this wintry time of your life, what I noticed is this. Look at this next verse. You joyfully accepted, joyfully accepted, the plundering of your goods. The Romans would come in and take your donkey. They would take your children. They would take your wife. They would take away your stuff. And as they drug it away, you would say... Hey, just so you know, uh, Channel 12 doesn't work real well on that television, so just, just want to let you know if you're going to take that thing. Hey, you know what? That, that particular cow, hey, you want two? Here's two cows, but just know that one doesn't give as much milk. They joyfully accepted the fact that their property was being stolen and ripped away. What? Are these delusional people? Are they screwed up people? How in the world could they joyfully accept the plundering, the thieving, the stealing of their goods. Well, they are able to do it in an incredibly reasonable way. Look what he says. They knew something. The way they were able to endure, if you don't bow down to the emperor, we will take your stuff. And they joyfully were able to endure the plundering of their stuff, knowing something. They knew that they had a better, something better, and something enduring, an enduring possession for themselves in heaven. So two things they knew. Whatever you're taking, I got something better you can't take. Whatever you're taking, I got something that's more enduring that you can't take. And it's in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence in God, that's what faith is, which has a great reward. A great reward. And what he's saying is faith is a future mindset. That when you go through difficult times, you can have confidence. It's incredibly practical. That whatever is being taken from you, you have something better and more enduring in heaven. And Jesus talks about this a lot, actually, in the Bible. And let me show you just how practical this can be. So, career. Many of us love our careers, love our jobs. I know I do. But the your career can sometimes move from being a good thing to a, a defining thing. And so you become very driven. And the reason you become driven is because you've got some number that's going to make you happy. When savings account gets to X, I'll feel secure. When my sales numbers get to Y, I'm going to feel secure and happy. When I finally get X position, I'm going to feel successful. What the Bible says is there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with work. God gave us work. But no number will satisfy you. You know, Jay, you don't know the number I'm thinking about. No number will satisfy you. And here's what happens. When you say, whatever that number is, it will not endure and is not worth as much as what you already have in Christ. You have treasures. Whatever number yours is times a zillion 
is how much God has secured for you in heaven in Christ as a co-heir to Jesus Christ. And when you know that is secure and moth can't touch it, and you know that rust can't touch it, then in this life you say, you know, I'm going to love my job, but I'm going to realize that even in my best day and my best dream and my biggest BHAG, it's nothing compared to what I already have in Christ. And this thing will not endure, but what I have in Jesus will endure forever. It doesn't mean you don't work harder. It means now you put that drive in its proper context compared to something that is much better and that will endure. Maybe you love people's uh, opinion. Maybe you've you got a tender heart and you like people's acceptance and you like people to like you. And, and who wouldn't? And you go through a difficult time where somebody's maligning you or maligning your company or worse, gossiping about your children. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean it's not painful. But what you do is you compare. I don't have the approval of my neighbor. I don't have the approval of that, that colleague. But I compare that to I do have the approval of the God who made the universe. Well, that's worth more. I do have the approval, not of the fickleness of a neighborhood or the fickleness of a, of a, of a, of a company or the fickleness of a friendship or the fickleness of your, your, your teenagers who like you today and say they hate you the next day. It still hurts, but it, it's not where I find my identity. I find my identity in something that lasts longer and is much more valuable. And you apply the grace of God to that acceptance, to that moment, to your career. And when you lose something, some reputation here, some credibility here, you give in to a fight here, you say, you know what, I'm willing to give in here. Because whatever got plundered, whatever got stolen in this circumstance is nothing compared to what I already have secure in Christ. And that's what they're doing in a very practical way. Think of it this way. Imagine as you came in today, you came through the, the, the doors, and as you walked in, we handed you a bundle of money. So imagine just right before you, as you came in today, you have in your hands $100,000. Every one of you here has 100000 Everybody here has a stack of money. So you, you can do it in small bills, you can do it in large bills, whatever makes you feel better. You've got $100,000 in your hands. Now that you got it, something given to you that, that you didn't deserve, how do you feel? Wow, I'm feeling a little more secure. Feeling a little, it's going to be a good Christmas. Now I want you to imagine this section here. Middle of the sermon, somebody comes in and says, actually, you know what, when you came in, we slipped you guys only 50000 uh, So you got swindled by the half of it. <sighs> the section here, middle of the sermon, somebody comes in with a weapon, put your hands up, and they take 50% of all yours. So yours was swindled, yours was stolen. This group, as you came in, somebody sort of grabbed you and said, I got this great stock tip. And you're like, really? you got to go right now. And so as you're walking in, you're like, well, I'll take the stock tip. It's found money anyway. I don't have to research it. And so you give in. Oh, you just lost 50%. Even before the future's open, it's down 50%. So how do you feel? Well, you feel violated. You feel the injustice of it. But because it was given to you, it doesn't feel quite as bad. But what if I then told you that that 100000 we gave you when you came in, well, it was actually Monopoly money. Oh, if I lost Monopoly money, well, I still don't want somebody pulling a gun on me. But And that Monopoly money we gave you was just a token of something we actually secured in your real bank account. That's why we asked your bank accounts when you came in this morning. Like, oh, well, that's weird. We actually put $100,000 in your real bank account. It's secure. It can't be touched. 
and the 100,000 monopoly money was just a token to remind you of what you really have that's secure. You would then compare the real riches secure in the bank to the monopoly money that was plundered from you. And you would say, oh, well, what I have is more secure and what I have is going to endure compared to the monopoly money I lost. Right. That's what the writer is getting at here. When you realize what you have in heaven secure, it's reasonable not to be overwhelmed. And he goes on. He says, so faith is this future mindset that God is going to give us, God has secured for us what really matters, and we compare that to the struggles of this life. Number two, faith is not, 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 not the absence of evidence. It is substantive. It is reasonable. It is evidence. Time watching TV, there'll be some news reporter interviewing some pastor or some priest, and they'll be talking about whatever the subject is, and say the news reporter will say, well, isn't it true that if you wanted reasons for your faith, if you wanted evidence for your faith, that's really the opposite of faith, right, Reverend? And the Reverend will say, well, that is true. The priest will say, yes, that is true. And I want to throw something at the TV. No, it's not! The absence of evidence is called ignorance. Faith is evidence based on what God has done, what he did in history. Faith is not magical thinking. It is evidence. It is substantive. It's based on what God has done and will do. That's his whole point here. And that's why he says, look at the physical world around you. It was framed by the word of God. And the things you see around you, the things that are seen, are not made of things that are visible. Which you're like, what do you mean they're not made of things that are visible? Until you take a science class. And somebody tells you that these things we think are visible are made out of all kinds of invisible things. This is composed of atoms. Have you ever physically seen an atom? Not a picture of one. Have you ever seen an atom, that invisible thing? I haven't. Have you ever touched an electron? Proton? Photon? You ever had a handful of nuclear energy? How about a handful of gravity? And yet the world around us would not operate without these invisible forces of gravity and nuclear power and nuclear energy that hold the very atoms that we have together. And all day long, we operate with confidence that we're not going to fly off this planet because of the invisible law of gravity. We operate every day that the mixture of nitrogen and oxygen in our air is still going to be the same in order for us to breathe. And we have confidence in these invisible attributes that make up our universe. And the writer here is saying in the same way we do that with our physical world, we can do that in the spiritual realm as well. Sir Isaac Newton, one of my favorite the scientists, one of the profound inventors of modern-day calculus. If you wonder who to blame, I know who to blame. He invented, imagine him inventing calculus so that he could do a higher level of physics that was actually possible at the time. Strong, Bible-believing follower of Jesus. The man was so famous, such a scholar, such a, uh, uh, an out-of-the-box thinker, that when he died, he was thought of as a celebrity. Three earls, two dukes, and a lord came to his funeral. Unheard of for, for anyone who wasn't royalty. Voltaire said that he was buried like a king. And you know what Sir Isaac Newton said? He wrote as much about calculus and physics as he did about Daniel and Revelation. The mathematical calculations he did about the Bible and its predictions and its fulfillments. And Sir Isaac Newton would say that as much as he invented modern science and mathematics, 
that his confidence in God and its predictions were even stronger than science itself. That's not a lack of evidence. He was always talking to his scholars, talking to his scientific colleagues, saying, put your confidence in this book. I've tested it. It's true. It's true. And that is why the writer is saying, so that the things which are seen in this world were not made of things which are visible. In the same way, the spiritual realm, you can't see the promise of God, you can't see the truth of God, but it is just as real as the law of physics. It is just as real as calculus. It is just as real as the forces around us. That's not seasonal faith. That's not magical thinking. That's reasonable. I remember I was in sixth grade. We're learning in a science class about thrust and lift. All these ideas of what makes a plane go up. You see this plane, you're like, that cannot go up in the air. Well, there's these invisible forces of thrust and lift and drag, and they make this, you know, very, very heavy thing go up in the air. And you're like, what? All right, well, I believe it because the teacher said it. But at some point, those truths become personal. When you get on your first plane, I hope this thrust works. I hope those flaps do what they said they do. And that theoretical truth becomes personal truth. The same thing's true of God. For the last month and a half, I've uh, been taking some flying lessons. So I took my second lesson, and I'm in the cockpit, and all of a sudden, again, this idea gets very, very personal. I hope thrust works. I hope this, oh, I hope this flap really does what it's supposed to do. And so we start flying up in the air, and, and, and I get the white knuckled on the yoke, and it's this very, oh my God, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And I'm holding on tight, and as I'm holding on, doing the white knuckle thing, Putting my confidence in these truths I learned about, I turned to my uh, my, my co-pilot, or the real pilot, and I said, uh, Phil, I said, you must have taught a lot of people to, to fly. I said, is it nerve-wracking, the difference between teaching somebody to fly versus a car? It must be just really you know, nerve-wracking to know that you know death is so imminent. It's like, no. Really? It feels that way. My fear felt very real. The anxiety felt very real. Chad, look down at 32. Look at those cars. Yeah. If they just make one sixteenth of an inch mistake, people die. He goes, you just climbed 500 feet and didn't even realize it. You just went down 500 feet in that last turn and didn't realize it. There's so much grace up here. There's so much freedom up here to learn. And as I was thinking about that, the reality of grace, the reality of freedom, the reality of these forces that hold you up, and and my hands got looser. And I began to enjoy the flight more because I put my confidence. It's not the fear wasn't there. It's not the anxiety wasn't there. It's the truth of grace and freedom became more real in that moment. And the invisible force of thrust was just as real as the invisible force of grace in that moment. And that's what reasonable faith is. Now, next he goes on and gives us some examples of that. He says, by faith, here's the phrase he uses again, Abel, first example, offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which, by putting his faith in God through the sacrifice, he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testified of his gift or sacrifice, and through it, he being dead, Abel, still speaks to us today that we should do the same. So there's four views as to why Abel's gift was accepted more than Cain's. Uh, argument number one is because he gave a blood sacrifice versus a fruit sacrifice, blood covers sin, so God accepted it. 
Option number two is Abel gave his very best of his flock to God and saying, God, I'm putting my faith that I'm going to give you my best because I know you're going to give your best in return. Cain gave his second best. I'll give you the moldy grapes. I'll give you the not so good fruit because I want to keep the best for myself. Option number three is that Cain came to the sacrifice and offered God the sacrifice, but he had sin in his heart that he refused to confess, or Zabel did. Or the fourth reason is that Cain didn't bring his offering by faith or confident that God could make him righteous. I lean toward the fourth view. It's probably a combination because faith is such an emphasis of this chapter. Because God is saying, I want you to come and give me your very best sacrifice, your very best gift. And by doing that, I want you to have confidence when you give to me financially, when you give to me your heart, when you give to me your rights. You have confidence that when you give me your best, I will give you something far better. Whatever you're giving up, you're getting something worth more that lasts longer. Riches in heaven confidence in God and more than that I will make you righteous see I will make you acceptable before me he goes on he mentions Enoch says the same thing by faith Enoch was taken away so he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him but before he was taken he had this testimony that he was that he pleased God wouldn't it be great to not walk around with a big blanket of guilt all the time, but to know that you are pleasing to God? Now, you could do that by trying to work hard. and You could say, oh, if I work hard enough, then maybe I prayed enough today or I didn't pray enough today. If you put faith and confidence in God's sacrifice, he says he will make you righteous. That's what Jesus does on the cross. That's what Abel puts confidence in. I'm putting my confidence that God will make me righteous. That God will make me pleasing to him. See, God doesn't take saints. He makes saints through the sacrifice. And we, by faith, put our confidence in what he's done for us as the foundation of who we are. That's his point. That's what he's asking us to do. And he mentions this really interesting. Why does he bring up Enoch? Remember our folks who are having all their stuff stolen by the Romans? you got to wonder when... Not just stuff's being taken, but your family's being taken. You've got to be sitting there thinking, is faith worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Is what is the cost of not worshiping the emperor worth what the emperor is taking from me for not giving my allegiance to him? And I heard that Jesus is coming back, and I heard that it's true that I have riches in heaven, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't feel very real right now. I'm filled with doubt. And the writer says, that is reasonable doubt. Let me give you some reasonable facts to help address your doubt. You're wondering if Jesus is ever going to come back. If he's ever going to rapture you out of the situation. If he's ever going to make good on his promises. Let's look back in history. Does God ever have a pattern of answering the promises he makes? Because he did with Enoch. Enoch was a rapture. Enoch was so focused in whatever he's going through and staying close to God. And God did come and rescue him. God did come and return to earth. And we don't know when the return is going to come. Hopefully it didn't come during their lifetime. But just as God did come for Enoch, he will come for us. And it's reasonable to have your confidence in what God's going to do in the future based on what God did in the past. 
Think of it just one day, just Enoch and God walking together through the garden. Not the Garden of Eden, but just through a garden and just through life. And Enoch and, and God were walking, just talking about life, talking about what they liked, laughing together, joking together, just enjoying each other's friendship. As they walked for a while, you could just imagine Enoch sharing some struggles he had, some challenges he had, and God listening, giving some advice or some wisdom. And they're so enthralled in their relationship that Enoch suddenly looks up and he's in heaven. He turns to God, he says, what happened? God said, well, I was so enjoying our time together as we were walking. I, I realized that my house was closer than yours. I thought we'd head to my place. And Enoch was so enthralled with his relationship with God that the location was really irrelevant. Certainly heaven was amazing. I think God wants the same thing for us. Us put our faith and our friendship with God and trust that whenever he comes or returns, that's up to him. But I'm going to enjoy being with God here and now. Like Abel did. And like Enoch did as well. To which many people begin to say, well, I don't know if I like this idea that, that God needs to reward you or that I have a reward in heaven. Because I remember being in a college class or, or fifth grade class, and I remember my teacher having a bumper sticker that said, integrity is its own reward. Remember that, that bumper sticker? Integrity is its own reward. You shouldn't want rewards. You shouldn't want benefits. You should want goodness for the sake of goodness. You should want God for the sake of God. To want rewards is inherently selfish. Oh, man. And at best, you say, well, maybe it's neutral. You know, it's not bad, but certainly not good. You shouldn't want rewards. You shouldn't want benefits. You're thinking, wow, man. And yet Hebrews comes to us and says... Not only is wanting rewards not bad, not only is wanting rewards not neutral, Hebrews says it is impossible to please God if you don't want Him to reward you. Well, that's a reframe. It is impossible when you're having everything taken from you to say, integrity is its own reward. Bye, honey. It's not enough. It's not going to sustain. When stuff gets plundered, when people get stolen, when you're going through real hardship. Look at how clear it says it in verse 6. The essence of what faith is, he says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you want to be pleasing to God, it cannot be done without faith. It can't be done by works. It has to be done by faith. And here's what faith is. He gives us two components to faith. Now, if I asked you, what are the two components of faith? You might say, let's see. Um, you got to believe in the deity of Christ and the second coming. No, you got to believe in the incarnation. And I only get two. You only get two. We've got to believe in sin and salvation. Those are good ones. That's not his list. If you want to please God, you've got to come by faith. And faith has two essence, he says. Essence number one. He who comes to God must believe. That's what confidence and faith is. You must believe something. Number one, that he is. Really? That made the list? Before you can please God, you've got to believe God exists. Duh. But it's more than that. Do you believe he is good? Do you believe he is your justifier? He is your salvation? Do you believe that he is the one he says he is. Number two, essence of faith. You've got to believe God exists. And number two, you've got to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
before he mentions the incarnation, which he doesn't mention here, before he mentions the deity of Christ, all important doctrines, before he mentions sin, very important doctrine, salvation, very important. He says, but the essence of faith before you is you've got to believe God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's the secret to enduring the seasons of challenge. Which means God is going to reward me for choosing integrity. Is it its own reward? Yeah, it lasts about a week, maybe a month. But God will reward you for choosing to do what's right. When it doesn't feel good. When it doesn't become its own reward. God will reward you for choosing His way over your way. God rewards you for sacrifice, for generosity, for giving, for serving. Because I've got to tell you, there's, there's times in life... That people say, you know, I really want to go serve down at Gospel Mission or I want to get something off our giving tree to give to a family. And I love that feeling around Christmas because it gives me a warm feeling inside. And that's awesome. It's awesome to be generous to get a warm feeling inside. It's awesome to serve for a warm feeling inside. It's awesome to sacrifice to get a warm feeling inside. But if you do sustained giving, sustained serving, sustained sacrifice, that quickly wears off. Try caring for aging parents where you have rearranged your schedule between a soccer game, between a, a, this event, and you show up, and it's not going on for a week, it's going on for years. You're trying to care and honor your parents. And when you show up, you don't hear, thank you for how you've made a sacrifice. Wow, it's amazing how you have prioritized me during this difficult season of busyness. What you hear is, here's a to-do list. And you know, you haven't been here in a while. And you don't get gratitude, you get ingratitude, you get entitlement, and you get really critique. When you're serving a spouse during a difficult time of depression or a season of them having a critical spirit towards you, it doesn't feel good to serve and to sacrifice and to adapt to them. But you can have confidence that God says when you adapt to a spouse who's critical, when you adapt to a family member who is going through depression, when you adapt just to a, a different human being, and you're thinking to yourself, how could anyone think this way? I mean, I married this person. They seem sane, and then I started living with them. And they do not think right about anything. And you learn to adapt. And it doesn't always feel like, wow, I feel so good that I swallowed my pride today. I feel so good that I did what they wanted to do. And in those moments, God says, you can have confidence that God is taking notes. And he will reward you for adapting, for loving that prodigal son who's continuing to rebel. God will reward you. God will honor you. God will give you something far more lasting than what you give up in this moment at this time during this difficult season. When you have a friend that calls up and says, oh, I'm so depressed today. I feel so terrible. I don't even want to be with myself. Could you come over? You're thinking, well, if you don't want to be with yourself, why would I want to be there? But you show compassion and empathy and strength and love. You love your friend. You come over to your friend, and your friend begins to tell you how you know, terrible their life is, and they begin to share. And, and as a few minutes go by and a few hours go by, they're starting to feel better. And you're like, oh. And you leave, and you're not more filled up. You're like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. I'm and yet you saw how you gave life to somebody who was challenged and who was hurting. And in that moment, you didn't necessarily feel better in the moment, but God will honor how you cared for the hurting. God will honor how you sacrificed. 
I mean, every week my house is under constant construction trying to save my son's life. I'm taking roofs off, uh, off, uh, off uh, swing sets because Quinn's climbing on top of the swing sets and locks on doors. And it's just relentless. But I'm just reminded that Jesus says, what you've done in the least of these you've done to me. I am serving Jesus through sacrifice. You're serving Jesus with your spouse. You're serving Jesus with your son and daughter. You're serving Jesus with your clients. And that is why the essence of faith is believing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So this season, don't have seasonal faith. Have reasonable faith based on the facts of history, the facts of science, and the reality of the future that God will reward you for great lavish generosity, lavish service, lavish adaptation, and say, God, I'm trusting the reasons for faith, not the seasons of my feelings. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this reminder of what faith is. Thank you for the reminder of how we can put our confidence in you, that you are the great comforter, you are the great strength, you are a great lover, you are the best friend, Father, and that we would put our confidence in you and trust that our full identity comes not from our career, not from our family, but from who we are in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said... Amen. Thank you for being with us today.